Hey, you're listening to Lit After Dark, the podcast where three English teachers nerd out while they analyze Netflix's dark. This week, we're looking at Season 1, Episode 9, Everything is Now. In 1953, Ulrich is arrested by a young Egon, and Noah counsels Helga's mom after his disappearance. In 1986, Alexander shows up with a gunshot wound, and Helga questions his involvement with Noah. And in 2019, Hannah lies to Katerina and tells Alexander she wants Ulrich destroyed. All that, plus our analytical takes on this episode of Lit After Dark. Are you guys recording? We're all recording? We clapped in, man. (laughs) (laughs) Josh is going to be the Tommy tonight from the last night we recorded. (laughs) Now, the show is called Dark, and everyone that I've been recommending, they're like, oh, I'm not really into dark shows, I'm not really into horror, and I'm like, no, it's not that. But I gotta say, episode nine, to me, didn't feel very dark. There was, of course, very dark elements there were multiple reasons that it felt very fun to me. And that may just be where we're at in the show. But there was this level of just like adventure and excitement where this episode felt like a different genre almost. Did you guys get that sense at all? Or was it just me? No, definitely. This was for me, I say it every time, but it was the most entertaining episode I yeah. loved the way it began. I I just I was all totally those enthralled. Shots on all their faces. Yes. I actually yeah. had to watch that scene a bunch of times because I kept getting drawn into looking into all of their eyes instead of reading the subtitles. I agree. I mean, that's a mark of a great show, though. If every episode you're like, "This is the best one," we they've they top themselves again. That's what I'm that's saying. That's true. So what what also made me feel that way is the song at the end of the episode that we may talk about. But that song was very different from all other songs in the in the ending montage. It was very upbeat. Yeah, I looked it up. Did you look it up? Yeah. The lyrics are bizarre. That song is so really bizarre. weird. It's very kind of thematically on track with Dark, but the tone of that song versus the tone of dark is like life's crazy and time doesn't matter, but it, who cares? <laughs> and dark is like life's crazy and time doesn't matter. So it's pain and chaos. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice the song. I feel like I should have. Usually the songs are, are really tone appropriate. Like the one that sticks out in the mind, in my mind mostly is when Ulrich was being arrested because of the rape accusation. And the song was like, me and the devil. Yes. That one really stuck out in my mind a lot. Hello. Welcome to our podcast. You have been listening to us talk for a little while. And so that you know whose voices these are, if you're just joining us in episode nine, this is Tommy. And this is Josh. And I'm Jen. Did you forget that you have to introduce yourself? Yeah, because I, I, I was like, no, I want to go back. I want to go back to talking about those faces. I have to, something to say, but continue your introduction. Well, thank you for the permission. Uh, you're on episode nine. I can't imagine that you would join us right now. But if you did, then you will now learn that this is a spoiler-free discussion of dark. That is spoiler-free for everything but this episode. So we obviously will be talking about this episode in its entirety, as you already know from listening to the introduction. 
but we are not discussing anything past episode nine. Josh and I have seen the show before, but we have forgotten a shocking amount of it. Jen is going through it for the very first time. So hopefully you enjoy kind of slowly walking through with us. I've actually, have you guys talked to other people about the experience of binging a show versus watching it slowly? Yes. Yeah. This show, I feel like, benefits so much from both methods. Yes. Mm -hmm. It is a uniquely bingeable show in the sense that I don't want to sleep. I don't want to do anything but watch the next episode. But being forced to have that anticipation and sit with the mysteries and sit with the art that we are presented has been such a really wonderful experience through this podcast. And it feels really unfair as I'm going through it. Specifically for Jen. <laughs> because we've binged it before. We get both. She'll get <laughs> she'll get to binge it later. <laughs> you know, I've I've remedied that by going back and just rewatching what we've already watched and binging mm. it in that way. And I've watched it a lot. I am fully obsessed now. Which is great yes. because I thought I was gonna hate this show, I'll be real honest. <laughs> and honestly, it probably took till episode three to think that maybe I liked it. <laughs> But I fully love it. (laughs) Thanks for sticking it out with us. All right. Well, let's get right into it with our first segment, Lit Takes. Lit Takes is where we talk about notable things that happen in each episode. If you're with us, you know that we kind of structure it a little bit for ourselves, but it's mostly a free-for-all and just kind of a general guideline for us. In this episode, we are going to be cutting it into each year. So we'll talk about 1953, then 1986, and then 2019. Josh, you said you wanted to talk about the faces at the beginning. Yeah, so I spent some time today <laughs> looking at those faces and pausing at each one to write them down who they were and at what time. I did the same thing. And, oh, you did do the same thing? Yes. <laughs> did you count how many characters we have in the show? I did not. It's not 33. <laughs> oh, yet. Yet. No, no they, we have 27. Divisible by three. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> you did that, that math so quickly. I'm really proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to our math teachers. Mm-hmm. Counting for us. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if we get six more characters. And yeah, it, it, but it was very interesting to see how they started out with the characters from 2019. And then as we went through, we went further back in time and we got to see each character in each era. But it seemed like the characters who... We only have one time period for them. We're at the beginning and at the end. For example, we have at the end, The Stranger and Noah, only one picture of them. And at the beginning, we have all the kids from 2019. Noah at the end, ending with him, was so stress-inducing. And his vein, his his temple vein, I think is the scariest part about his face. I don't know how he does it. I almost feel like that's almost like the hair and makeup that did Helg's ear. They also added that swirly goo vein on his temple. (laughs) He's just always concentrating like really hard. So as those pictures, well, Jen, do you want to say anything about those pictures? Um, Nothing beyond. I just loved that glimpse of like, okay, do I know every single person? Yeah, I think I do. (laughs) But there was a new character that you didn't know. Okay, there was actually three I didn't know, so I'm totally lying. (laughs) There was three I couldn't place, but I was thinking they were Conwalds because I haven't picked up on those ones as well as I have everyone else. Yeah. The only face that I didn't immediately recognize was Burns. Yeah. And then the only one that I couldn't recognize was Alexander, who we don't meet until this episode. Yeah. True. 
I also loved the rhythm of that because the it's almost like a heartbeat as things were going, yeah. but it was changing pace so that it felt out of sync and it sped up at the end. So it felt so stressful. It was brilliant. Yeah, I watched that several times. Yep. I did it a couple times just reading for this opening quote that we're about to talk about, but then also just to like stare into every character's eyes into their soul. So let's get to that opening quote then. It is man has always puzzled over his origin, his Genesis created by God or a product of evolution. If we could see yesterday and tomorrow at the same time, the origin and the end, the entire universe in a single moment, we might finally find answers to the biggest questions of all. What is man? Where does he come from? What drives him? What is his purpose? And only very tangentially related to this, I just need to say, I wish I could say that in German. I want to learn Mm. German now. I want to know German. We share this in common. (laughs) (laughs) I downloaded Babbel, but I haven't started lessons yet. I was just telling Tommy, I think you weren't on yet, that I bought an audible version of learning German. (laughs) I'm really excited. I just wonder how many things (laughs) we miss not actually knowing the language and getting the shades of meaning that we're able to uncover in English, because we obviously know English very well. Exactly. There, There is some level of interpretation that must be occurring from the translation itself that changes the way that we are meant to receive the show, which, as I say it, sounds so pretentious and English teachery, but it's what I am. There's one other thing about that. I remember when we first watched this a year or so ago, Tommy, you mentioned that this made you realize that German is a beautiful language. Mm. And yes. I feel like a lot of American television and film has taught us that the Germans were the bad guys, then the Russians were the bad guys, and those languages are very kind of harsh and the bad guy language in a way. But this just completely changes that perspective. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It has it has such such a scope to it, I feel. Yeah. So just positive representation is nice. Yes. <laughs> Do we have anything actually to say about this quote, or do we just want to wax poetic about how lovely German is? I think it sets up... I always feel like when the episodes begin this way with this over-narration voiceover, that there is something poignant here for us to capture that informs maybe not necessarily how we interpret this episode in a singular way, but how we continue to interpret this narrative as it continues on. Um, I wrote this one down in my dark notebook, which I now have a dedicated notebook to watching the show, but it feels like something I would come back to and kind of consider its significance as we wrap up season one and start season two and make our way to season three. (laughs) Slowly but surely. I thought it was interesting because we are sort of in this position, right? we get to have this view of the origin and the end in a moment. Not in a moment, I guess, but in one place. We don't have to live the 33 years, right? We get to watch Egon in 1953 struggle over this question, and then we shoot to Egon in 1986. We get to watch all of these characters experience something all at once over a huge cycle of time, as opposed to being forced to only see it from the one linear perspective that we would otherwise be forced into. In a way, we are the center of the triketra. (laughs) Looking out to everything at once. (laughs) Yeah. 
I feel like you're saying that half jokingly, but it's also kind of right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the other thing that we is a common image throughout the show is this mysterious machine that everybody said, well, everybody, that Claudia and the stranger have both said will set things right somehow. And the only really notable thing besides it just looks so cool really is does. <laughs> that each like cylinder pops up and then it's like 1953 and then the next cylinder pops up and it's 1986 and then the next cylinder pops up and it's 2019. I really loved that imagery. <laughs> also within each cylinder, there are five layers and I thought that could be day, month, year, hour, minute. That was just a thought. Hmm. But within each of those cylinders, there are black rectangles and white rectangles. But there are three white rec- rectangles between each black rectangle. And I believe, I i mean, I slowed you it down. You went full and, Tommy on this. Yeah, I was going to say. I for sure did. <laughs> but I believe it is, there are four black rectangles in each level, in each row. Hmm. I don't know what that means, but I just noticed, oh, there's three rec- three white rectangles in between the black ones that separate them. So that means there's 12. Also divisible by three. <laughs> yep. Three's everywhere. Look at my math skills, guys. <laughs> you are impressive. <laughs> so we open with Mrs. Doppler. And I wanted to ask you guys to reassure myself, perhaps. Did this engender any sort of sympathy for her in your eyes? Yes. So when she's talking to her husband... She said something along the lines of maybe I scolded him too hard about his pants, which obviously was the thing that bothered us in the last episode about her and her harshness and her intimidating factor. But when she says that, she's visibly emotional. So I sense some sort of remorse from her. But maybe I read too much into this and I have a burning question I'm attaching to this initially is she says to Noah, I pray to God to get rid of the child before it was ever born. And after I had him, I prayed every day that something would befall him because he may not be Burns child because he may because maybe he wasn't a child created created out of love. Every day I think that I can't escape it. It's all my fault. So my question is, did she have an affair? Or <laughs> Was she raped? I didn't even consider that. I assumed affair, but she seems like the least likely person to have an affair. Why is that? (sighs) She's just so conservative and buttoned up and proper that to have an affair seems like such a breach of conduct that it doesn't seem to line up with her character to me. We just know so little. It's I get it. I totally understand that. It's just hard for me. To literally say, because he may not be Burns' child. When you frame it like that, it it does make me feel a little bit more sympathy for her, if that's the reason. But still, this entire thing, honestly, and again, I'm going to say this without any self-reflection whatsoever, I was happy she was suffering. I was happy she felt bad. I felt that she deserved that. Oh, for getting upset with her child about his dirty clothes. (laughs) For getting upset with him to that point and abusively forcing him to undress in front of her? I'm not a mother, but I still feel like regardless of how you 
may operate as a human being, if your son or child is no longer, you don't know where they are, that's going to break my, (laughs) whatever I felt about you before, I'm going to feel the deepest sympathy for you, regardless of how you were. Because she's obviously broken up about it a little bit. I also feel that her treatment of Helg makes a lot more sense now, because he is a daily reminder either of something that she did wrong or something terrible that was done to her. Mm-hmm. And so he is now kind of the the one who receives all of that, which is horrible. But man, well, that when just- you put it in that light, it makes me feel worse for her because I wasn't willing to view it like that. <laughs> but I still don't think that it justifies the treatment of Helga. This is more what I expected when we watched this show. I feel like up until this point, I have been more willing to give emotional clemency to people and sympathy and empathy. And you guys, for whatever reason, have not shared that with me. But right now, I feel like we are in the exact place that I expected us to be, where I'm on the outside judging people and you're like well but let's think about this let's let's (laughs) let's think about their experience and how can we empathize with them so i guess that's that's a little vindicating in some way we've we've assumed our (laughs) proper roles there we go so burned goes to talk to egon at the police station and i know this isn't lit 101 but this really unveiled a theme that has been building throughout the show that for whatever reason just became extra apparent to me with this conversation. And beyond just the love of a parent for a child, this show very specifically seems to be about fathers and sons. And it sounds so obvious to say it now. Looking back at the show, it literally opens with the father-son relationship of uh, Michael and Jonas. But it is very much about fathers looking for their sons and sons trying to get something from their fathers. And so you have the mirror images of Berend Doppler and Ulrich literally trying to, to say there's like, they literally say the same thing. They say, it's my son. Find my son. Where's my son? And you have Mads disappearing. I guess we haven't really seen Trant care that much about the disappearance of his son, but for me, it, it just really solidified the, especially because of the Jonas Michael relationship, the burned Helga relationship, and the Ulrich Mikkel relationship. Father and son theme things always get me really oh, good. Yeah. I think that's probably a primary reason I love the show. The other big surprise in that scene is that Mr. Conwald is a cop. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, presumably Inez's husband, right? No, because in 1953, Inez is a little girl. Mm-hmm. Remember, we see her, her at father. the watch shop. I keep screwing up these timelines. Yeah, so it's her father, I'm assuming. The other obvious big thing in this Doppler situation is Noah shows up. Yes. It's just that anti-aging cream. Yes, he's so mastered the... Can't hide the veins in his forehead, but... I'm not noticing that the way you guys are, but... I'll I'll look for it. You will know. (laughs) There were a couple things that I found really interesting about that conversation. And part of it was Mrs. Doppler's openness that you were talking about, Jen. But the other part of it was when he reached over as he was comforting her, she said, so he says, we can never fall lower than God's hands. 
And she says, what if they're not God's hands? What if they're the devil's hands? And as she is saying that, he reaches over and touches her hand. So devil's hands and then Noah's hand, literally (laughs) the exact same time. And she is so uncomfortable with his touch. She clearly recoils physically at having him touch her. And she only calms down when he says, let us pray and takes his hand away. Did you guys notice that? I read it differently. That didn't stand out to me either. Did you notice how she dabs her lips? Yes. Why? What did you think about that? So I have had a different perspective on her in general. Yes, she's very uptight and she's very kind of puts on that, which I feel like is more of a facade than anything. And if we can assume that she had an affair, this brings more evidence to what I'm saying, but we're not sure about that. But in the previous episode, the way that she walked down to talk to Egon when he came to look for the dog, it seemed like a very, almost like a seductive way that she was talking to him and like descending down the stairs. Hard disagree. Yeah, same. (laughs) Sorry. I'm shaking my head no, but... (laughs) There was a weird energy, and I felt like there was a weird energy here as well, where she was almost like, oh my gosh, there's a man touching me. And it was, I don't know if it's disgust, but it, it, I don't know why, but she was dabbing her lips like she was drooling. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going on record again saying that I fully disagree with you. This is the second time I've done this. <laughs> Something different is going on there. And it's... There was some weird energy. I don't yeah, even know no, what was going on. For you to label it as seduction is so weird to me. Yeah, I didn't see that as seduction. (laughs) But when Noah touches her, my thought was, has it been so long that she's been touched by a man? Oh. That was just... There was something weird, regardless of what it was. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. She dabs her lips in a weird way. There was this weird energy. It was drool. (laughs) I mean, we've seen Noah's back and front. He's pretty (laughs) attractive in spite of his. The priestly garb hides it, though. Mm. Can I say something, though? Well, this is attaching to my burning question. In 1953, we see a scene between Agnes and Mrs. Tiedemann, who we've identified the first name of as... Mrs. Tiedemann is Doris. Doris. And the ice ice queen is Greta, according to the end credits. Okay. So Mrs. Doppler is Greta. Thank you. If we No, that's good. So Agnes gives this beautiful gold dress to Doris. Doris. <laughs> Thank you. I'm like, how did I forget this already? And it's an interesting scene because As Claudia says when she's walking with Tron in the forest, your mom is so beautiful and elegant, and I haven't seen a woman like her. So for her to come into the Tiedemann household and then take this wife, Doris, and who's kind of timid and maybe not in touch with fashion. Sure. I would say confidence even more generally. Yeah. Yeah. Which... That says something about their marriage and maybe what we don't know by the time we see Egon as a 1986 angry police chief drunkard, blah, blah, blah. But she dresses 
Doris in this beautiful gold dress and she ties the tie and they're looking at her in the mirror and she's really uncomfortable and she's saying things like, I feel like we're having the queen over or something. Like, why would I be dressed like this? And then Doris says about the dress and her in it, what would Egon say? And Agnes is almost kind of angry and irritated with that response. And there's a dialogue that unfolds there in which Agnes, mother of Trant, Nielsen family, says that her husband was a pastor, but I can't say he was a man of faith. He wasn't a good person. So all I'm going to say here is, is it possible that Noah is her husband? Well, they cut right to Noah right That's after that. That's why I probably I feel like it. the show is doing everything it can to make you assume that. Is it false assumption? I don't know. <laughs> I wrote in my notes, in all capital letters, is Noah Agnes's husband with about 70 question marks following it? That's a reasonable number of question marks. I think so. <laughs> For reference, in my notes, it says Noah, 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 all caps, question mark, question mark, <laughs> question mark. <laughs> Going back to Agnes, though, I just think she is a woman of mystery, and I'm excited when she comes up again in this narrative, because I want to know more of what ultimately is Ulrich's backstory and his family history. I agree. I think that you hit all the important points about Agnes that I was thinking about as well. Sorry, I was just going to say blue and yellow dresses. That's all. Yep. (laughs) I saw that too. Did you also notice that Tront was wearing a blue jacket as well Ooh, to match his bomb on the same day? Did not, because they matched on the first day. Yeah. yeah. Good observation. Hmm. Oh, by the way, speaking of colors, the Conwald house is definitely purple. They, we saw it again yeah. in this episode. Yeah, and it's definitely sure. purple. Thank you. <laughs> so the last thing that we need to talk about in 1953, it happens at the very end of the episode, but 2019 question mark, I assume 2019 version of Claudia. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Must be comes into Tanhouse's shop. Yes. Who is working on Ulrich's phone, clearly trying to get it to charge in a different way. Yeah. And gives him blueprints for the machine. You're so excited. Well, <laughs> so has he been working on it for 33 years? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As of now. 33 years giving up. And then he needed that other push from the stranger to get him to finish i haven't thought about it too in depth but i'm always wondering now when i'm seeing the future whether that's 1986 or 2019 am i seeing the future version that's impacted by the changes we now know from 1953 if that makes sense well, that's the or biggest question, right? Are yeah. there changes? Yeah. Is there a different version of anything? I think that's a great segue into Ulrich's experience in 1953, yeah. where he's staring at the bunker, contemplating for hours the what he assumes is a murder that we find out in this episode was not. Right. And his confrontation with Egon, I thought, was so significant, where he's like, what do you mean the bodies you found? You can't have found that. I changed it. I changed the past. Yeah. I changed the future. I changed it. But he didn't. He was a part of it. He was part of the reason that it happened, even. I I remember that in the previous episode, you asked, what is he thinking as he's staring at that bunker? Is he thinking, is he dead or not? And now I feel like what he was thinking of 
am I feeling this change? Am I feeling this change? Mm. Am I noticing this change? Yeah. Do I remember Mikkel being missing or do I not? He mm. was very much concentrating on that. And I feel like his internal thoughts were basically, have I done it? Have I changed yeah. the course of events? One way that we haven't thought about it yet is in terms of a time paradox, because he shouldn't be able to go back and change anything at all. Because it becomes a paradox immediately. If I go back in time to stop myself from doing something, then the timeline cannot exist in which I would go back because that thing did not happen. So let's say I knew that I got into a terrible car crash in 2015 and I figured out a way in 2020 to go back in time to 2015 and stop myself from getting into that car. Because I have changed the course of time, I have stopped I would have stopped the chain of events that would lead to me going back in time, which means that I couldn't go back and do anything to change it, logically speaking, if cause and yeah. effect matters, because nothing would have caused me to go back in time and do that, which is kind of a really basic way that we haven't considered the paradox of time travel yet. This show hurts my head. I can only hear Doc Brown saying it's going to be, what does he say, a major paradox? <laughs> well, and that's why... And in, in Back to the Future, timeline split. Yeah. Let's put a pin in 1953 and move toward 1986. Yeah. And it opens with a bang. Katarina's interaction with Hannah and then Katarina's interaction with Regina. I, I don't want to move too quickly here. I have the thing that I want to talk about. But what do you guys want to talk about? Well, even before we get Hannah and Katarina, it literally opens with a bang with Alexander. Thank you. <laughs> Being shot. Yeah. So, uh, this is in the dark, but what happened? Where has he come from? Right. Why is he changing his name? So many questions. Was it this easy to evade the law in 1986? Was he coming from 1986? I know he was dressed oh. like he was 1986. But Actually, so that was a big question of mine. He goes right to Regina immediately and, like, white knights her oh. so hard. And, like, I really why, though? That. To me, it spoke more about him. Yeah. I don't know. Like, we initially see him as a criminal, as someone who is hiding from the law. He's been shot. But then we see him defending someone in a really kind of heroic way. Dude, can you imagine if you're Katarina and Ulrich just kind of beating up on someone and somebody pulls a gun on you? How do you not tell everybody about this? Why do Katarina and Ulrich not hold this against Alexander? Where'd you get that gun, man who is in our lives now into 1986? Have we seen any interaction with them? We have seen Ulrich go to Oh, that's right. The, and he beat the crap Alexander out of him. <laughs> and get beat up. <laughs> but Katarina is a badass. For her to say, does that gun even, or is that gun even real? And not feel any sense of, you're going to shoot me right now. She literally challenged him. She's a badass in this whole episode. So we'll tough. talk about that later. <laughs> she is a hurricane in this episode. <laughs> I love I it. I love her in this episode. The That whole interaction was weird to me. And I'm glad that you said that, Jen, because I got this weird feeling like somehow his coming to Regina was purposeful and yeah. involved some sort of outside knowledge. Yeah. Even when he walks into the power plant and that secretary introduces him as a friend of Regina, her mom is even like, a friend? What? Like, how would my daughter even have friends? So there's something <laughs> in that. Because we've seen everybody hate her. Yeah, but for why? For no reason. She had that other bully that shoulder checked her into the wall 
like, why? What is, what has she done? What could she have done that the entire school apparently is just, yes, this is the girl we're mean to. I feel deeply for her. And she is someone who only evokes your sympathy really truly, even in 2019, obviously, for the circumstances she's facing. But she dishes it out in 2019. But because we get that glimpse of what happened to her in 1986, I'm also like, girl, go ahead. Feel free. Yeah, I was going to ask, why does she stay in Winden? But Alexander must have tied her to there since he wanted to... And her mom working at the power plant and him ultimately working at the power plant, those things must have kept her there. And now it makes sense why he took her name, too, potentially. <laughs> I mean, we know he took her name, but... Well, I think he must have taken her name because Alexander Cooler was not his name anyway. It, exactly my point, yes. So what does he care? <laughs> or he's trying to evade that identity as well. That's a good point. Uh, the only thing that we haven't said about that is his name is Boris Nevald. Is what we find. I did everything that I could to slow down the image I know. of his passport Same. and and look at it. You can see Alexander Cooler's passport very clearly, and you can see it say 1965 for the birth date. I desperately wanted to look at the birth date for Boris Newwald. Yes, and it's so blurry. Like I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out or pick it up. Can we note that that name is a combination of Nielsen and Conwald? I just think that's weird. That is very interesting. Yeah, I think it means something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me let me look at the family tree. <laughs> because he's so mysterious, I'm like, and we don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about his background. He is a complete mystery with that bag and gun and passports. But I literally wrote Nielsen Conwald. <laughs> That's a really interesting thing to notice. Well, Mickle Michael is a Nielsen Conwald as well. Ooh, what does it mean? My curiosity. I mean, now is- I'm full tinfoil hat, and is Jonas <laughs> yeah. somehow Alexander's father? I am seriously like, this is where I feel the need to binge watch because if you don't know genuinely, then I'm like, okay, this is a season three question, or it doesn't mean anything. I don't know. Hmm. Not to spoil anything, but at the end of season two, I remember there being so many questions still unanswered. I'm sure. So I wouldn't be surprised. And that's how season one finale is going to feel. We desperately want to watch it, but it will be 10% satisfying <laughs> and 90% like ah, one more. I'm going to go crazy. Yeah. The last thing that I want to say about Alexander, and this this connects to whole, the whole Claudia thing. So maybe this isn't the right order to do it in, but he... In 1986, it works. You can just go to a place and say, give me a job. And then you get one because that's how you can get jobs in the 80s. He had a family connection. He did. He had Regina. But also, we can go back and talk more about. Sorry, go ahead. So, no, I was just going to say for what Claudia uses him for eventually makes sense, too. Well, so that's what I was going to say. The the last kind of pin on Alexander's story, we can go back and talk about Claudia. But I had assumed that Alexander had the door welded shut in 2019 when there was all of that fervor around searching the power plant. Yeah. He did have it welded shut. In fact, he did it himself, but in 1986. Mm -hmm. And that was surprising to me. Mm -hmm. Jen, I feel like you're the perfect person to talk about the rest of Claudia's story. So what wonderful thing does Claudia get to experience in 1986? (laughs) Well, I was very pleased to see that Gretchen returns when she's in the caves. She's pantsuited her way down the cave again. She has. And honestly, I found so much humor in the scene of not only 
Gretchen returning, I'm going to bypass some things, but when she has Gretchen sitting on her desk, and I love that like quizzical look of, is this my dog from 1953? I'm, I'm so perplexed. And when the secretary walks in with Alexander and she's like, what is this dog doing on your desk? Unspokenly so, but I just... <laughs> that I, was a funny moment. I really enjoyed that. Okay, and in the previous episode, Jen, you mentioned that when Helg throws the stick into the cave, you thought you heard a sound. Yeah. Did you listen to this episode right before the dog shows up? I thought, okay, I didn't hear anything, but I thought she kind of looked up before she actually heard the dog. Like there was something that caught her attention. There was a very strange sound. Okay. I didn't notice it. I didn't hear there that. There absolutely was. And she looked up before she heard dog sounds. Right. I'll insert that sound here. And she does gasp a little right at the end of it. So that's the sound and her gasp. But I mean, I mean, just like with just like with Mikkel, which we discussed at length, somebody helped this dog, right? Like this dog did not open the Sigmundus Kratos as door, <laughs> right? <laughs> like we're not willing oh, to say it's so that. Windy. It's so windy. I didn't think about that. Because it's been pretty well established that that is the way to access the breach. That's true. Yeah. That we know of. But then again, in this episode, we have two other machines that we know are somehow related to time. But we'll talk about those later. Yeah. Well, the chair doesn't seem to work. I was going to say, I don't see how <laughs> no. the chair is related to time yet. <laughs> well, that's what Noah says. He does call it. That's the first time we get the words time machine. <laughs> and he knows how to travel time, so... Where is that coming from? Yeah. Well, well. Unless so you he's don't just, just think again, it's a really good anti-aging yeah. cream? <laughs> Unless it's that, yes. Or he's the... Antichrist. <laughs> demonic spirit or something. <laughs> the ageless antichrist. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, when we have verification, I, I guess we don't know why would the stranger lie to Tannhouse, but he said that he has used that machine before... But now he uses the, the cave to move. Right? He says that. He and says this creates, this creates a 33 year jump or exact, whatever the exact wording was. So we know that that machine at least at one point worked. Mm -hmm. I thought so. Yeah. Okay. The last really significant thing we haven't talked about in 1986 is Helga. Yeah. Joshua, take the reins. <laughs> I'm going to take the reins and then go to a really weird place. Why on earth is he making all of these? What's his obsession with acorns and pine cones? He was using them as a kid. He was shooting with sticks. He was throwing these pine cones as bombs. And now he's using them as like these dolls. I read that as like this arrested development. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. He's still very much a child. Very and much. what really solidified that for me is when he was terrified when Egon was knocking on the door, he goes into the same protective stance as when his mother was scolding him to take off his clothes in 1953. Like he does the exact same thing about how his shoulders come in and he puts his hand over himself. And it was just the same exact pose. And it's also his way to connect with these kids in a way, because when Yasin finds the first little doll. It, it, he's like, oh, this is a childish thing. And he's, in his own way, just the same kind of childish. Now, 
one other thing that I wanted to mention about the beginning of that scene is that we see two Helgs, one that has come from 2019 and then one who is in 1986. Now, we have heard from Charlotte that he had an accident on November 12th. And there, there has been reference to this. The day that we are watching in all three years is the 11th of November. And so we do not get the conclusion to both Helgs. And I'm wondering if this incident, <laughs> strangely, is him attacking himself, maybe? Helg on Helg violence. <laughs> I don't remember I don't the know. answer to that. I don't know. I don't either. Episode 10 better tell us, but that's all I'm going to say. So the other obviously very significant portion of that beyond what we've talked about is his conversation with Noah and very childlike, very timid. He says he's not sure he wants to do it anymore. And he like holds up the screwdriver as like expecting Noah to attack him. And this is the darkest we've seen, Noah. Jen, you're oh, reacting <laughs> facially a lot that our listeners can't see. Verbalize those facial expressions for me. All I have to say is it reminded me of our discussion last episode where we had talked about a little bit, I think, as is Helga murderer. And you had stressed, Tommy, again, that he was complicit with this. And I'm now just seeing it in a slightly different light where there is, like you said, that arrested development where I'm like, something happened to Helg where he is still, he's still a child in a man's body. And I think that's what we've seen from his first interaction with Claudia in a few episodes ago when he's cleaning the graffiti. He was just very innocent and... I look at him with such sympathy and I'm not justifying his actions and whatever he's participated in with Noah so far, but it feels like Noah had his eyes on Helg from the beginning. Like you are going to be my accomplice. Like, Puppet. yeah, I don't know. Like I'm going to work through you. Well, and almost like he knew, like he must have known if we are taking the idea that it's not the age cream and he is actually <laughs> traveling through time, <laughs> then he knows Helga's story. He knows yeah. what happens and right. he could have stopped it theoretically if it's possible to stop things, yeah. but he could have tried to do something, but clearly did not. And in that prayer, when he's reading Psalm 23, which you're going to talk about with Greta. Yeah. Oh, Greta. Okay. Yeah, with Greta. Greta. He looks over at a certain point at Helga. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's where you drew that. And yeah. this whole aggressive speech, it just, it, it clarifies for me and seems to answer our questions from earlier of he's putting on some sort of a costume and a character. He is not really a priest or a pastor or whatever no. the correct <laughs> term is. And it only clarifies for me. I don't think his name is actually Noah. I think that that is no. a name he has given himself. 100%, yeah. yes, to serve whatever role he thinks he needs to play in this necessitating time travel. But that whole speech that he gives Helg is so heartbreaking, and it's so dark. And he says something in those lines about, you've looked into hell. Like, you've seen yeah. this, and you can't forget this. And it's almost like he's trying to remind him that, yes, I have total power and control over you. There's no way out of this. You are stuck with me. 
I've been mentioning existentialism throughout this show, but this is a very existential point of view of God is dead. There is no such thing as God. We create God out of a vain hope and desire to provide purpose, meaning, and hope into our lives. But really, the universe is nothing but chaos and pain, which is literally what he says. Literally. The way he delivers that message to an audience who is very susceptible and that he could say that and to that hug. Oh my that God. hug that he gives him. <laughs> and Helga, like, takes a while, but he, like, sinks into it very comfortably. Because who else loves Helg? Let's be real. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, where does Peter come from? How is Peter... Super important question. So yeah. that's another big question, is we're talking about how childlike he is. Yeah. Peter obviously is not the biological child of Helga. I'm honestly assuming that. I don't know if that's accurate. One other question that this brought up, was because of his, as you said, existential, there is no God speech here. It kind of brings into question, why did he go and speak to Mikhail when he is in the hospital? Mm. About there being a plan. Yeah, about there being a plan. Maybe he was just like, I am the Time Lord and I am just checking up on all of my (laughs) little (laughs) threads. (laughs) I need to make sure everything is in place. He has so many. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I mean, he's grooming everyone. Yeah, we'll talk about 2019 later, but... I viewed it a lot as, I, I because of this speech and because of that look, he, there is no God with a plan, but I have a plan and I am now God. As the Antichrist, yes. <laughs> like yeah. he is the one who will create order. And that's what he says, right? We will decide the world's fate far removed from the evil and the pain. We'll create a time machine that reorders everything, the beginning and the end. Yeah. I just had a crazy thought. Now, Noah is there talking to Miko, and we know that Noah is the one who is collecting these children. Now, my th- initial thought was like, wait, if he's collecting children, why didn't he collect Miko there? But he needed to make sure that Miko was there so that he could be a part of this everything. He, he's. I, I honestly feel like he is checking up on him to make sure that he is in the right place in time. And as you said, like he is acting as God. I am in control. I am the puppeteer over all of this. Whoa. I see the threads. Yeah. Yeah. And think about that. So do you think the show is setting up Noah as like the big bad then? Like the ultimate antagonistic force in the series? It's so weird to me because when he says people are bad, malicious, evil, life is nothing but a huge spiral of pain and the world is doomed to be destroyed. But this here, this is our arc and I am Noah. If we can harness this energy, we can change everything. Then we decide the world's fate far removed from all the evil, from all the pain. Yes, that might be like a a trick to Helg, but it's also like, is he in some way thinking I am doing something to... Oh, I don't think this is a trick. I think this is his thesis. The way that he looked when he said, this is our arc and yeah. Ich bin Noah, like that yeah. was, the music changed. Yeah. Like he meant it. He felt that. Okay. Show's cool, guys. <laughs> show like this. Really cool. Okay. Well, okay. Let's not wait any longer because I want to talk about Katarina being a freaking hurricane in this episode. So let's move to, we're now in 2019. Okay. Yes. And- there's a little bit with Hannah in the beginning, but let's ignore that because Hannah's the worst. And <laughs> yeah, agree. Katarina bursts into Charlotte's office and it wildly slams down on the table and Charlotte like recoils. I love like, how intimidated she was, which was shocking to me, to be honest. And is a testament to what a badass Katarina is. Oh, absolutely. And she is just completely in control that entire time. Charlotte, yeah. of course, is listening to Oryx's message and 
just like, I just, I, he's on suspension. I thought it would be better if he was home with you. What do you think we do? We sit <laughs> holding hands all day. It is no, <laughs> it is not better with him home. <laughs> and I love that when she leaves as a hurricane, the blinds blow away. <laughs> Oh, it's amazing. So, okay, this is the moment that I talked to you about. So about learning German, and I've been really into translating the German subtitles. And I don't know how we're going to handle this, because this is not an explicit podcast. But there's a moment where she is talking to herself in Charlotte's office. And she says, our son is missing. And all he can do is go and screw that slut. The German subtitles are far harsher than that. And if you would like to see what it says, I strongly encourage you to look it up. It is not family appropriate, <laughs> but it is way more aggressive than what she says in either the English dub or the English subtitles. Wow. Interesting. And I think that just goes back to our point before of everything is an interpretation. Reading a translation is necessarily an interpretation of the text yeah. that we have to wade through before we can actually get to the meaning of it. Don't read Shakespeare Made Easy Kids. That's my ultimate point. You have to read the original Shakespeare, even though it's hard. It's a good, important lesson right there. Thank Agreed. you. Thank you. So now she, the hurricane shifts to the Conwald house. In, I think, the scene that has made me the angriest of any scene that I have oh, watched. My gosh. I don't think there's room for us to have sympathy for Hannah anymore. That's all I can say. <laughs> I have in my notes, Hannah equals the worst. She has lost it for me. And I'm sad to say that's true. Just her narcissism and her sociopathy almost oh, is at its is peak. Crazy. <laughs> but like, at least we haven't seen enough of her story to say, oh, I can kind of see why you might do that. At this point, it's just, no, you are a selfish, terrible, terrible person. We have seen a little bit of her family life, and her dad seemed like fine, like it's like kind of a nice dad. Precisely my point. We don't know about her mother. We know she we had one. Mother. <laughs> we know her husband committed suicide, so I, I try to keep that in the forefront of my mind, but... From young Hannah to old Hannah. Yeah, Yeah, it's exactly. She makes bad choices. So she gaslights super hard. My only hope as she is crying and Hannah stands and comforts her is that Katerina won't buy it. Yeah. Is that Katerina will see through this somehow and realize that there is no way that it could be true. But she believed her so quickly in 1986 when she said it's probably Regina who said Ulrich. I mean, it was an easy thing to buy. I get that. But Josh, you made a confused face. Well, yeah, she just has this pattern of both confusing Katerina and also trying to hurt Ulrich and punish him as much as possible. Just for not loving her? Yes. The ultimate crime. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> I don't usually handwrite notes in my first watch because I just want to experience the show. I could not write things down for this episode, and I had some very choice words to say about Hannah at this scene. I was I was watching it alone with my headphones on in my like room with the door closed, and I was like freaking out alone, shouting honestly about what was happening right now. And it was I'm rather emotive, as you guys know. <laughs> 
but I think I probably seemed more insane than usual because it was just me in a very private, isolated moment freaking out. Oh, man. And then she just kind of continues, right, with her insanity and confronts Alexander in a move that she has clearly been processing all morning of exactly how she is going to utilize the leverage that he she has against him. Right, that's why she looked at the box earlier. That's what I was talking about. Yes, absolutely. And again, the dramatic irony is her ultimate desire is for him to be utterly destroyed and lose everything. As we've talked about, like that has happened. What more does she want to happen? Another thing I love about this is that she echoes something that they both said in the first episode. She puts the the bag in front of him and she says, yes, there is a time for everything. Yeah. And it was a great callback. And she was like, it's the time for this right now. I've been waiting 33 years to use this. And now I'm going to use it for some reason to get back at my ex-lover. And her whole conversation is about all the stuff that we've been talking about before, about fate and predestination. Yeah. It's just all very on on theme. She does reveal, though, that... Not that this allows for more sympathy for Hannah, but she looks at Regina and no. Yeah, Regina and Alexander, and you have this beautiful home, you have all of these things. Why don't I have that? Why is it so hard to even just pay my bills? And granted, the only thing I know about her profession is she's a masseuse for Alexander at the point. Just Alexander, I guess. (laughs) I don't know how far that goes for other people who work there, maybe. And also just keeping in mind, yeah, your husband is dead. You have a son. I mean, she might have a legitimate, like, life feels unfair in this capacity. So I want to give her that, like, not that it justifies her actions in any way, but it allows for us to say things are hard for you. Maybe that's why you're acting so crazy. I will say I did enjoy, even though I'm not on Team Hannah. No. <laughs> I did enjoy the power switch of how in the beginning it seemed like she was, he, he was powerful because he was being massaged by her. Mm-hmm. And somehow him being shirtless in a room with her being massaged was him exercising power over her. But afterwards, as she chooses to continue massaging him as she is threatening him, that shirtlessness and everything seemed like vulnerability. For sure. And she was mm. in in control. She had the power using that exact same, like literally the same everything else except for the context of what she was saying. Totally flipped the power dynamic. And I thought that that was really neat, I guess. <laughs> I don't have any deeper point to make. And except for the fact that like Alexander is really scared that this could hurt him. Yeah, I need that backstory. And I love that when he gets up, you can see his bullet wound on his mm-hmm. chest. And so it must have come in from the be- from from the front and gone yeah. out the back because the back scar is much larger. Yeah. Exit wounds. Thanks, television. <laughs> 33 years later, he is in his 50s, probably, I think I would put him. If he was born in anywhere near 1965, like Alexander Kuhler was, then he would have been about 19 right in in 1986 Mm -hmm. so he's probably at least similar to that if he thought that he could take on this identity how could this come back to bite him 33 years later it must be something very big there's so many questions around that the other big reveal is that he has a contact willing to work with him at the police station and it is mr eyepatch voler (laughs) 
That was surprising, to be honest. Which made me happy for all the times that people kind of crapped on Roller before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Justifying his actions. Yes. I mean, not really, but. Jen. Yes. Your show crush had a pretty significant moment in this episode. I was so pleased to see him again. Um, (laughs) I'm team Magnus. I don't know what's going to happen for him, but 100% adore him. Okay. So I appreciate that the bird necklace came back and that he was able to hand that over to Francisca. I still am questioning. I mean, this was just such a brief scene, but I liked that we got to see Martha and Jonas and, kind of touch back into their stories, but clearly the hooking up continues. But I love that she, whatever she says, I can't even remember it, but he was like, I want to know you. Like Her I, wall comes up and she says, just because we are having sex doesn't mean you have to know everything about me. Right. And so, I mean, he asserts that that's his genuine interest and it's it means more to him. And- And she asked for time, and he's like, that's okay. You need more time. And just, like, doesn't push it. (laughs) I love him so. And then when he comes down and sees poor Martha. In the sweater. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. I felt so deeply for her. She was just that little ball and desperate longing to hear from. Well, and she's very interestingly echoing Bartosh. Right? And his his experience waiting for Martha to get in touch with him. And I know that we all hate Bartosh for whatever reason. I don't hate Bartosh. But we don't hate him. We don't hate him. Oh. We good. just think he's not that great yet. He's we've not seen right we've seen so little of Martha. Him. Yes. True. He's not right for Martha because <laughs> <laughs> we are on team Jonas. Uh, no, no, not that. <laughs> no, we cannot be on team Jonas. Oh dear. I mean, one thing I love about Martha and Magnus is that a lot of their sibling relationship is just proximity. Mm -hmm. When they are next to each other, it's just like we are here together and we are now the two siblings. And that can just be enough. And when he sat down next to her just to be with her, it was it was quite precious. Well, in their whole conversation, why do we keep secrets from each other? Some things you just like to keep to yourself. Which I 100% respect. <laughs> disagree. <laughs> I, I know disagree. you do. I know you do. <laughs> what? Continuing Martha's story, her interaction with Jonas was just gutting. Oh my gosh. And from every direction, it's terrible. I can't imagine the pain that she feels, and I can't imagine the pain that he feels. Like, they're both trapped through no fault of their own. Nobody's in the wrong, but everyone hurts. One thing I love about Netflix shows is that they are not needing to cut for commercials and they don't, they're not constrained by time. There was so much empty space. They just let it lie everywhere. And it was brilliant. It was so quiet. And each moment of quietness, you were feeling that tension and just waiting for someone to say something. (laughs) But both of them have no clue what to say. Well, and we were put very much in the position of Martha. Where it's like, you want to say something, man, like say something to her. And then he just says, it's wrong, it's wrong. But then she kisses him and he kisses back. Yes. I mean. You can't even say it's not you, it's me. It's it's both of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, but how can he, 
I just grappled with it because I'm like, you can't explain this to her right now. But in the same, he obviously feels something for her. And then as a television viewer, I am willing to suspend disbelief, if you will, and just say, yeah, go for it. Because what is it so even? So I didn't know how to say this without <laughs> sounding awful. But part of me is like, look, man, all of the rules that you thought existed about time and space are wrong. Why not get with your aunt, man? <laughs> Okay, don't say it like that. I just... (laughs) I'm trying to live in that. That's not true. (laughs) You didn't know that until the stranger told you so. Really, he said it outright. I mean, he obviously could have known, but... I agree that it's icky, and I don't want that. And it feels... (laughs) It does feel wrong. But on the other hand, you know what else is icky? Is time travel, and that doesn't feel good either. And it's, it breaks the law of nature in such a clear way. And I just want Jonas to have a win so badly. And I felt <laughs> That's so horrible for Martha throughout this that I just wanted to be like, you know what? Who cares? Like, I'm going to choose to ignore this. I'm going to make my truth that I didn't know that. And I will ignore that. And we can have this relationship because I need some spot of joy in this horrific life. It's also raining again, conveniently, for that conversation. It's raining a lot, or they're just out there for a while. This is November in Germany. I think what also impressed me about that shot, just from a cinematography perspective, is there were very few cuts, and his hair was dry when he first took off his hood, which means they either got it in one shot or like went back and dried his hair, I guess. That feels less likely to me. But that just felt impressive to me. I did notice that, yeah. Well, we are in the home stretch of 2019. We need to talk a little bit about Bartosz, a little bit about Regina, and a little bit about The Stranger. Can we please talk about Bartosz? Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, oh Bartosz. Playing video games. <laughs> I think his conversation with Noah makes me understand more why he was so accepting of Claudia coming in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What I did think he Noah must have told him. <laughs> he, that must have been one of them. What else did he tell okay. him? What offer did he make him? How on earth did Noah know that? He travels time and observes these families. Oh, wait. You're totally right, because that happens in 2019. Yes. So 2019 is the end of the Triketra. This is the end of the wormhole. How on earth would Noah know what's happening in the future if time is consistent between these three timelines? If you can only jump 33 years forward or 33 years back, How on earth would he know what would happen in the days coming after that? That's what we know, but maybe there's. Well, this has been a question that I've had for a while as well is why is it only the three? Yeah. Why is it just 53, 86, 2019? I'm also assuming his eye machine doesn't work in 2019, but that could be wrong. (laughs) It's a good question. I. Yeah. I would just assume that he has other powers because <laughs> he's the Antichrist. Also true. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. That really bothered me as I was watching. I agree. I didn't even consider that. I just thought he was a Time Lord. And so. <laughs> has he gone to 2000? Get there. What would that be? 52? There you go. I don't know. I can do math. <laughs> That's a wonderful question that I did not consider. How does he know that? Regina. Okay. So when she was standing behind the desk in the hotel, and you can tell that she is so 
I mean, we can say burdened by her cancer diagnosis, burdened by maybe what recently happened between her and Katerina, um, burdened by the circumstances in the town. But when she wipes her finger over the dust on the um, countertop or whatever, my initial thought was, yes, clean. Cleaning is a good response to stress. And that's just what she does. And I, and well, no, go ahead. well, wait, before you get to, before you get to what you're going to say, well, I don't know exactly how this fits into what you're saying, but I think that the perspective that we get from Re- Regina, cause it cuts to her in the midst of Claudia's conversation with Bartosh. Mm-hmm. And I just really appreciated Claudia's candor of, I wasn't a very good mother. I mm-hmm. made a lot of mistakes and mm-hmm. I did a lot of bad things. And not only did I see her kind of staring out and considering and grappling with most recently her cancer diagnosis, it also spoke to me of her just grappling with the past generally. Yeah. And thinking about her relationship with her mother. That's, yeah. that's what that said to me. But then of course, as you were about to get to, she finds, I thought that the stranger had just put papers on like one wall, like with that. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised by page that. Page a day calendar. <laughs> he spent a lot of time all over that apartment or hotel room. There's a lot And a on. lot of money. I know. How does he have so much money? He travels well, time. <laughs> you put a little bit in the bank in 1953. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have we seen him in 1953? Well, if he can travel through time, I assume that he can travel through time. Okay. I just want, didn't know if I missed that. We have only seen him in 86 and in 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we assume he comes from the him future. back in the room? Wait, what did you say? I said I assume he comes from the future. Wait. Why? I don't know. <laughs> Okay. He doesn't we seem like only... he belongs in 2019. Nor does he belong that's in actually, 1986. That's actually a great point because he also seems to know that the times things should happen. When he's in 2019, he looks at his watch. And he goes to meet and he Jonas says that it's, in the cemetery. Oh. And he says that it's very important that Jonas get the package that night. Which is why I said my theory previously, but... Oh, and that explains why Peter and Trant are looking at the notebook, the Time Lord notebook. So there must be, there must be future. I'm going to assume that there is. I mean, maybe we genuinely do travel to 2052 at some point then. If we have to keep to 33 years, then yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know if you guys looked at the pictures that he had on his wall. Obviously, there's a bunch of wormhole stuff. There was a picture of the Minotaur being defeated by Theseus as oh, well. Right. I think yeah. in one of the previous podcasts, I said Perseus. Perseus fought Medusa. Theseus fought. A lot of yeses. How dare you? <laughs> I'm not judging you on that. <laughs> our, no, sharp, our sharp-eared <laughs> listeners are writing furious emails. So we see him in 2019. And we see the trans sex worker by the truck who offers services that are ignored. And then... Very paradoxically, he breaks into the truck that we know has all of the barrels, puts down like a tube, a metal tube, and opens up a barrel. What was in there? 
It's the fallout that they've been talking about, right? But what could he be getting? What could he want? That's where I also, I guess, build my logic on. He knows so much more than everyone else. And what has allowed him that knowledge? Yeah. I don't think that it's a triketra with 1953, 1986, and 2019 anymore. I think that's part of it. There's a center. I don't know. Maybe the center is 2053, 2052. I just wanted to note that there's that short glimpse of after Regina meets Alexander, that we see her in front of her mirror, mirror oh. brushing her hair out. And I was like, okay, you've met a boy who defended you, came out of nowhere like your knight in shining armor, and now maybe for the first time you're thinking about how do I look more beautiful or how do I keep, I don't know, you know what I'm saying. It really mirrored Hannah to me mm. when she's in the truck and looks down her shirt and is like oh, yeah. questioning her beauty as well. And she looks at the brush. Yeah, that's, it was just. Very short scene that was very heart-wrenching. It got me. The show's doing everything that it can to make us feel for Regina, I feel oh, like. Oh yeah, I definitely shed a little tear. <laughs> Let's move on to Lit 101. Lit 101 is where the school bell goes off and you Step into class with Tommy, Josh, and Jen. We talk about themes, motifs, images, symbols, allusions, connections to other texts, generally all those things you might half remember from your third period English class. And I am going to go first this time. So I tried again to stay pretty in the episode. I feel like in the past I've really gone out, and last episode I went really far out of the episode. (laughs) So this time I tried to stay a lot more grounded. And with this one, I thought about three kind of smaller thoughts that didn't really have a lot to say about it. So first was the title, which is Everything is Now. And that obviously relates to the opening quote, where he talks about seeing the origin and the ending all in the same moment. And maybe that would give you some big answers about the purpose of man, his evolution, whether he has some sort of purpose at all. And based on the way that time travel is happening, there is almost no meaningful now that we can talk about. If you've noticed, even in our own conversation, we stop saying the present to refer to 2019. And now we just refer to it by year because there is no longer a meaningful present for us. They are all present. They are all concurrent, especially, but not only because characters go back in time. And so their present is also what we would call the past from our perspective, but also because as a viewer, we have this, as I've been saying, godlike view where there is no past, present, and future in this timeline. There is only now, and there is only what we are experiencing in one moment. And that obviously has an implication in terms of the wormhole makes everything accessible now, the past, the present, and the future, but it also just has implications in the sense of how we talk about events at all, and whether or not we can even say that there is a paradox that occurs. So earlier I talked about a time paradox and whether or not you'd be able to choose to go back in time, because if you choose to go back in time, then the conditions don't exist for that choice. But maybe that doesn't matter because everything is concurrent. If we had some sort of a fifth dimensional view If you had a a view above the fourth dimension, which is time, 
it wouldn't seem like it is happening step by step. We would be able to see it all at one time, at one place present. Mm -hmm. And so I just have to keep going back to that's the position that we are in as the viewer. But then even the characters are kind of thrown into this position where everything is now. Everything is now and there is no such thing as past and there is no such thing as future. Everything can happen concurrently. So I thought that was interesting. And that's also how the show is presented to us. And we've been talking about how each episode seems to be everything is happening at the same time in each of these timelines. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. The other thing that I wanted to talk about that I think is something that makes this show very good is how subtle the differences between what these characters seem to want is and the path that they are taking to achieve it and the motivations for achieving it. So the stranger talks to Tanhouse about setting things right and using the machine to control time in that way. Noah, in this episode of We've Talked About, talks about doing the same exact thing, setting things right, reordering time. And Claudia, when she talks to Tan House in 1953, says the same thing. So all three of these major players want to set everything right in terms of how they specifically use the tool of time travel. But even Ulrich and Jonas are trying to use time travel to set things right. Jonas obviously ultimately comes to the decision not to take Mikael back, but that's what his goal was. And Ulrich is the opposite. He's the foil to Jonas, and he decides to take action to set things, quote-unquote, right. And I just think it's a mark of a good show that even though we have villains and even though we have maybe not heroes but good guys, they all have real grounded purpose and genuine motivation to do the things that they want to do besides i am evil and i will rule the world it's just it's very authentic one thing interesting about that and i'm referencing my time map i'm i'm noticed that there are three characters the the three that you mentioned noah the stranger and claudia who all have unknown time travel methods to us we don't know their comings and goings but it's interesting that there's three of them (laughs) there's three of them and they are a triketra yeah they are a triketra and we don't know everyone's motivations at this point Mm -hmm. so my last point is a little bit more meta and it has to do with what Bernd says to claudia when she is talking about the incident that we've referred to at the power plant And he says this, Do you believe that Hannibal marched over the Alps with the elephants? There are no truths, only stories. And the story of this city is in your hands. Is the power plant safe? Can something like Chernobyl happen here? What story will you decide to tell? Which I thought was really interesting because it means his basic point is there is no such thing as basic reality. Or even if there is, it doesn't matter. Whatever truth, quote unquote, is really... All that matters is a story that you tell about it. And that just goes back to everything that we've been saying about interpretation. There is no such thing as a fact that speaks for itself. There is almost no such thing as a fact. There is only an interpretation of what you perceive. And yes, there are some things that we can agree upon that we all perceive in the same way. But your interpretation of that fact completely changes the story that you can tell. And we all 
have our own narratives for what we believe about our own life, whether you're the underdog, the hero, the villain in your own life. And obviously, there's a lot of talk about how different groups have agendas or narratives that they try to tell about the way that history has gone. And those narratives change over time as well. And I thought that was such an interesting point, especially also as it relates to us watching a German show that we are already seeing through the lens of an interpretation by reading it in English. And this concept of whatever the basic truth of reality is, is insignificant. What really matters is who gets to tell the story about what happened. Hmm. One thing that's been bothering me about Claudia's whole situation, and this makes me think that maybe... Bernd knows more than he lets on, as probably most characters do. And maybe he and Helg are connected. Well, I mean, obviously they're connected through maybe he being his father. <laughs> Possibly. But I keep going back to episode three, where Helg hands her that book, A Journey Through Time. He has already been traveling through time. So why would he hand her that book? And maybe was it put there from his father? Because the, I thought of that when he was like, this is in your hands. First of all, I don't think that Baron is telling the truth about whatever the incident was. No. And second, I don't know why Helga gave that book to her, but I am almost certain that it was not his idea. Yeah. Now, yes, I agree. Well, speaking of stories, mine is somewhat related. I personally have always been fascinated with mediums. And I don't mean spiritual mediums, <laughs> but artistic mediums. You needed to clarify that. <laughs> uh, yeah, just to make sure. I'm not talking about Satanism anymore. Now, I'll put my hoof away. <laughs> thank you. I've been meaning to talk to you about this. <laughs> I find it interesting that different mediums that we have, movies, television, books, comics, even video games, they can all tell narratives in such different ways. And different stories fit different purposes, and I think fit in different ways. Movies, obviously, they're, they're only a specific amount of time. Dark could not be a movie. In no way could it be. That would be... <laughs> Not enough time. I think one of the best ways to adapt a book is to make it into a TV show because books allow a lot more time. They allow a lot more thought and time to sit with. And to me, right now, watching Dark has felt, and especially in this way, it's felt like reading a book. You get so much more than you could ever get from a movie. And I have been really enjoying that. And there has been a specific book that keeps coming to my mind. And I keep feeling a connection to that. But this is very specific to us. But I keep going back to East of Eden. Hmm. Mm. East of Eden is one of our favorite books. And we've talked about it, just us three. And it's probably one of the best books I've ever read. But it feels strangely similar to that. Now... The fact that we have in East of Eden, we have this long story told. I think it's from Civil War to World War I. We get decades told. And strangely, we get multiple families, mainly two families, and their stories told through three generations. And we 
specifically, one of the things that I see in that is that in that story, you get to see, okay, this is how it begins. And this is how these parents treated their children. And these, these parents treated their children and how those children's, how those children are reacting to that kind of parentage and their past. This show has been so similar to that, but we get to see it from the opposite perspective. We start at the end and we go, why is this person this way? Why is Ulrich this way? Why are the kids this way? <laughs> and But then we get the answers later. And I find that so fascinating that we get to see that. And one of the main themes of that book is about choice. It's about how do you choose to live your life? Do you choose to kind of live what your family seems to have made for you or the sins of the past in your family? Do you choose to continue with that or do you choose to make a change? And I bring that book up just as an example, but this whole experience, especially talking about it, this has felt like analyzing, as we've kind of talked about, a full-length novel. Mm -hmm. It is so long, so detailed, and it is so just up for analysis. And that's a, it's kind of a small thought, but it's very bookish. Yeah. Another connection between this and East of Eden is the way that you get the repetition of the same story over and over again in, in different ways. So basically it's like multiple retellings of the Cain and Abel story in yeah. East of Eden. Mm -hmm. But man, actually that's a really good connection because the whole thing is about whether or not you have the ability to choose mm -hmm. or are you locked in to what has already been decided based on who your parents are and who their parents and are. Obviously the connection between all the biblical allusions in both the fact yeah. that it's called East of Eden and we have a Noah here. It's, it's, it seems, we've mentioned it before, but very biblical. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Go read East of Eden. If you haven't read it, it's by John Steinbeck. Oh, and it's one, of his most it's one of his most accessible. Yeah. If you didn't like Grapes of Wrath in high school. <laughs> we get yes. it. I get it. <laughs> but East of Eden is really good. So good. Full disclosure, Grapes of Wrath, once you get through the first half or so, is also extremely good and deserving of the Pulitzer Prize that it won. <laughs> But East of Eden is, you can jump right into it. Mm. And with East of Eden, I think that like Steinbeck said that that was kind of his like final, it was like, I've done it. I've done that. I've completed this book, this magnum opus. Yeah. And in a way, this show feels that way where it's like, this is all of my thoughts about fate and choice and time and family. Uh. Well, I guess it's also just kind of a bummer that, even since Steinbeck, we didn't figure it out, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> we're still asking the same questions. That's true. Hmm. I guess the first thing I just wanted to say, I don't have much to say about this in all reality, but what is your guys', um, like, first thought with Psalm 23? I have a complex thought about it because it is always the, the like, whenever it's in movies, it's related to death. Correct. Okay. Which seems like a strange usage of it to me. Yeah. Like from it death opens to though afterlife. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. The whole poem is, or the whole—I mean, it is a poem, but the whole psalm, I would say, is about mortality. Yes, but I don't think it is about pa like post death. I don't think the valley of death is moving on past death. 
Oh, well, that's why I think it's connected with funerals, because it's not a message for the person who has died. It's a message for us. We are surrounded by death, and yet we are protected by the, the rod and the staff, etc. Yeah. I mean, I, I I did a little digging, and I was initially like, oh, why is it a funeral psalm? But that totally makes sense. I just kind of sat in it for a moment because I'll chalk this back up to the wondrous score of Dark that when Noah asks Greta, let us, or just says, let us pray, I wasn't expecting him to just pray Psalm 23. Particularly, it's a six verse psalm, but he just focuses on verse four through six in the King James version, at least through the English subtitles. That's how it plays out. But the score gets really sinister at that point, as it often does with Noah. And we already talked about this, but I think right after he says, like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he looks, he turns and looks at Helg's picture. And the only reason this kind of popped out at me as like, I didn't expect you to pray these three verses in Psalms. Are we assuming at that point in the story that Helg is dead? Can you explain more what you mean about, are we assuming Helga is dead? I just mean, I'm solely making that connection by saying now he's praying with his mother, Psalm 23, which we automatically oh. kind of say that's attached to a funeral. So why is he choosing to pray this as his prayer in this moment when we don't necessarily know that Helg is dead? We just think he's missing, that he's run away at this point through mom's eyes. Yeah, that's fair. I think it's just also generally a psalm about when you are surrounded by fear, as she very clearly is in pain, that we can take comfort in the ultimate protection of God. I will just also say that I wasn't as surprised as you, having grown up Catholic, that even if he is Lutheran, I don't know if that part got cut, but we talked about whether or not he could be a Lutheran or Catholic priest. Mm -hmm. Lutherans and Catholics are both very conservative. And especially if a priest is praying, it's almost always a pre-written prayer. It's not freewheeling improvisation as you Protestants are really want to do. <laughs> I get that completely. It's still... As much as that is true, I think I still just found it a little odd or unsettling that he launched right into, though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, as the prayer. And then the only other thing I was thinking about with that is going back to episode three and the 33 dead sheep and just thinking about what was said about sheep and how they all died together in a herd um, I think the medical examiner said, you know, it was cardiac arrest. It's very common in sheep because y'all remember that line, yes? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, Sorry, I didn't know you were looking to us for they're, they're very, confirmation. There's, there's just something that I think, oh, I should have written it down, but he was like, God created sheep and they're sensitive creatures and along those lines. So... Anyways, my point with it all is if you look at Psalm 23, and it's a psalm we look to for comfort, if you were to do a deep study of it, and my, my master's degree is in biblical studies, and I don't say that to be like, ooh, I know, because I could be very wrong, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I know that the idea 
Psalm 23 is an extended metaphor. So it's like, yes, it's David talking about and to God, but it's also giving you this idea of a shepherd and his sheep, right? So there's two threads in this story that God is our shepherd, yes, but we're looking at it how a shepherd cares for his sheep. What do you guys know about sheep? (laughs) Very sensitive creatures. True. Dumb. Like they're not smart. Yeah. They make wool. (laughs) Is that dumb? (laughs) We're so dumb. All we can make is wool. (laughs) (laughs) They get lost and you got to go find them. I don't don't know where you're trying to lead me right now. No, I think those are all accurate identifications of just commonly what I think we generally know about sheep and that they tend to follow the where most of them go. Okay, I'll follow. That seems right. Um, So the point that I'm just kind of drawing here is that it goes back to that characterization of Helg and how we see him now since episode eight, after again being totally beaten up by Ulrich, as he could have been the same way before, but I think there's something about him now after that assault, if you will, that he, as we said earlier, arrested development. Like, you can just say something to Helg and he's going to be like, okay, sure. Like, I'll follow wherever you go. Because something in him has been thwarted. So anyways, it felt to me, going back to Noah praying with Mrs. Doppler, that he like turned and gazed upon his sheep. Like, I know this is someone I'm going to kind of capture and draw into my my herd. I know that he will not make another choice because I can manipulate easily. This is just a sheep versus someone else who has full capacity of their being can say, no, I choose not to believe or I choose not to follow or do what you're saying. Helg is like his dumb little sheep that he can manipulate and make do whatever he wants. One thing that's interesting about that as well is that the shepherd when he is talking about his 33 dead sheep, he's like, oh, he quotes the scripture and he says, hey, we have a new priest in town. He's great. Mm-hmm. But I believe that priest was the one who caused those 33 sheep to possibly die. Right. I I may be making some assumption there. I thought that too. But he mentions that this chair is harnessing a great power. And by the way, like, where are those wires leading to? What? What? Yeah. Is it just like electricity? I, I don't know. It's so it's so strange. He has but, a flux capacitor. <laughs> he's figured it out. Wait, does the flux capacitor have three? Yes. Yeah, it does. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Time travel is real, guys. <laughs> it's all connected. So the final segment of our podcast is called "Still in the Dark." This is where we just kind of talk about some questions that are still agonizingly out of our reach by the end of this episode. And I'll start because mine is connected to everything that we were just kind of talking about, which is so far we have seen when people use the Sic Mundus Creatus Est door, lights flicker, birds die. And so is this happening every single time somebody uses the Sic Mundus Creatus Est door? And if so, 
wouldn't we notice that more? Like, wouldn't birds fall out of the sky more often? You know what I'm saying? Like, if people are regularly using these doors, are how come we're not seeing signs of it as much? Is it just because it's happening during the day and not at night when people have lights on? Hmm. We know that Hel. Well, we assume that Helg is using that to bring bodies back and forth, and so every time he did that, there should also be flickering as well. My only question is the one that I've already mentioned: is how does Noah know past 2019, and which relates to the booklet? How does the booklet exist? If this is just these three, Triketra, these three dates, doesn't add up. What was Claudia doing that whole time also? Also, thinking about it, when we see Claudia first, she's in what we think is the bunker, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, with all of the war stuff. But we already know what the three bunkers look like. So so that must be a different time. Yeah. Or maybe this is completely not Triketra and she's in some other... Quadketra. Yeah. Jen, do you have any questions? I'm just wondering what Claudia's history, like you were just saying, but I'm wondering if her dog was the indicator that, like, obviously leads her to figure some stuff out beyond what the power plant is revealing to her. Well, those are all very good questions. Good question asking, guys. Well done. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I hope that you had a wonderful time listening to this episode, and we will finally get to the finale of season one. That is episode 10, Alpha and Omega. Where will we find Gretchen next? What other lies will Hannah tell? Who else is secretly related? Find out next time on Lit After Dark. And remember, keep it lit. If you like this podcast, please give us a review and a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We may be reading some more reviews out in the future. If you'd like, you can email us at litafterdarkpod at gmail.com with questions or comments. That's L-I-T-A-F-T-E-R-D-A-R-K pod at gmail.com. You could follow us on Instagram and Twitter at litafterdarkpod. Thank you to Luke Van for our theme song. You can follow his work on YouTube. That's Luke Van with two N's. 